Good morning and welcome to this, the first ever Federalist Society audiocast. Thank you for being here this morning. My name is Dean Reuter. I'm director of the Federalist Society's practice groups, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our first ever audiocast. This is being brought to you by the Federalist Society's practice group, and in particular, the Federalist Society's environmental law and property rights practice group. Uh, we have with us a, a great panel of experts who will be discussing split decisions in the Supreme Court and how to interpret them. And I want to say a few words before we begin about our format. We're going to hear in turn from each of our four panelists. Uh, we're going to address the topic after their initial remarks, which will run about 10 minutes each. Uh, we're going to have some dialogue among the, the panelists, and then we're going to take questions from you, our listening audience. Uh, if you're at your computer screen, if you click on the tab for questions, uh, that will instruct you as to how to submit a question in writing. And I'll caution you in advance that the shorter your question, the more likely it will be to make its way to the panel. So I urge you to be brief. Our first speaker today is going to be Judge David Sentel. Judge Sentel was appointed to the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit in October of 1987. Uh, prior, uh, he's a 1968 graduate of the University of North Carolina Law School. And before becoming uh, a judge on the D.C. Circuit, he practiced with the firm of Uzel and Dumont. He served in as, as an assistant U.S. attorney in Charlotte, North Carolina. Served as a North Carolina State District Judge. Uh, he left that bench to become a partner, a named partner in the firm of Tucker, Hicks, Sentel, Moon, and Hodge. Uh, and in 1985, served as the U.S. District Court Judge in the Western District of North Carolina, from where he went to the D.C. Circuit. He'll speak first, and he'll be followed by Professor Mike Seidman, the Georgetown University Law Center. Professor Seidman is the author of the forthcoming book, Silence and Freedom, which will be available in bookstores near you in August this year. Uh, he's a 1971 graduate of Harvard Law School uh, and a law clerk uh, for Judge Skelly Wright on the D.C. Circuit and then for Judge Justice Thurgood Marshall. Uh, after, after his clerkships, he served as a staff attorney with the D.C. Public Defender Service until he joined the Georgetown Law Faculty in 1976. Importantly for our purposes today, his uh, expertise lies in the area of constitutional law and criminal justice. Our third speaker is going to be uh, Mr. Gene Scher. He's a partner at Winston & Strawn. He's a litigation partner there and chair of the firm's nationwide appellate and critical motions practice. Uh, he's practiced extensively in the U.S. Supreme Court and the Supreme Court of uh, many states, uh, intermediate appellate courts of many more states, and in... Uh, I think fully more than half of the, uh, the, the circuit courts, the federal circuit courts of appeal. Our fourth speaker will be Professor Donald Koshin. Uh, Donald Koshin is a professor at Chapman University Law School. He is visiting this summer at the University of Houston Law School. He joined the Chapman faculty in 2004 after having been an Olin Research Fellow and instructor in law at the University of Virginia, uh, and after having been a visiting assistant professor of law at George Mason University School of Law. He has a 1998 JD from Cornell Law School, where he was a John M. Olin Scholar in Law and Economics, and also an editor and executive editor of Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. We're very pleased to uh, welcome our panelists here today, and without further introduction, let's turn now to Judge David Sentel. Judge. And I'll start with a disclaimer. Uh, reasons that I hope are fairly obvious. I will not be staking myself out as to how I'm going to rule on any of the fragmented opinions that have occurred.
heard in the Supreme Court on, on which we've not had to express an opinion later. So I will necessarily be a bit general and uh, perhaps not very exciting in my treatment of what the subject is about. What do we do with morality opinions, concurrencies, but specifically plurality opinions when we are attempting to interpret the Supreme Court's statement of the law? Well, to get to that, I'll start with what it is that federal judges, or at least inferior federal judges, do to begin with. We are among the very few people who are declared to be inferior by the Constitution, especially. Uh, what we do, what our job is, is to find the law and apply it to the case in front of us, the factual basis in front of us. It is not generally our job to make law. We're not usually functioning as common law judges. It is our job generally to find and apply existing law. All right, if we're attempting to do that, where do we look for the law? Where do you find law? The obvious first place is in the statutes. The statute is plain and the facts in front of us plainly fall within provisions of the statute. The job's pretty much over. But if that's the case, the case where it didn't get to us. It probably won't end in district court or else we have gotten rid of it by summary affirmance before oral arguments. So when we get past the statute, the next common source of law is going to be binding precedent either of our own court or of the Supreme Court. Binding precedent is not just the result in a case, but it's going to be the reasoning of the Supreme Court or of the prior panel of our court, unless we're on bonk, leading to a given result. That can be difficult to find, even when there is a majority opinion in the Supreme Court, because you're not always sure what it meant by what it said. But it becomes obviously even more difficult when there is no true majority on the closest Supreme Court cases to the question before us. When you have 333 opinions or 414 opinions or any combination of judges fewer than five that adds up to five to get a result and the reasoning differs, what then do we do about finding law, that is to say finding binding precedent in the prior opinion? Well, the Supreme Court has told us in what's called the Marx Rule from Marx versus United States, I don't know why it's not called the Gregg Rule, because Marx quoted Gregg versus Georgia. In any event, when the court issues fragmented opinions, the opinion of the justices concurring in the judgment on the, I'm quoting now, narrowest grounds should be regarded as the court's holding. That's only easy to say. It only works, and we've discussed this at some length in our court in a case called King v. Palmer in 1991, an en banc decision. That only works logically and it only works practically when the, when one of the opinions can be said to be a subset of the other. However, it is not always the case that fragmented opinions involve a, a subset. There may be an overlay or they may touch only at the result. If that's the case, then the Marx rule or Greg rule is not helpful at all. That is to say, if you have three justices reasoning a broad way and two justices saying, well, I'll go part way with you, 
then that's a narrower opinion, and it, you can say those two justices have set the law, because the other three are obviously going to include what they've said. But if you have three justices who say, we reach a particular result because that's what Congress intended, and two justices say, no, that's not what Congress meant at all, but it'd be unconstitutional to apply the statute. Well, that's not a narrower subset. So what are we stuck with when it comes to us? That's what we faced in King v. Palmer, which involved a, an attorney's fee question governed by Delaware Valley in the Supreme Court, wherein Justice O'Connor's opinion was arguably a subset, but not plainly so, of a four-justice opinion. We hoped we finally came up with something that would suit all of them, but we weren't at all sure what we did. What is it that we are to do in that circumstance? I think we have to treat it first that there is binding precedent only to the extent that we must, must reach a result that is consistent with the result the Supreme Court has reached in the prior case. And then, even if it's not a subset, we're going to try to take the logic of the two opinions or more and tease out of them on something of which we think the Supreme Court did or would agree. You can't always do it. That's what we're going to try to do, is find a ground that we think the Supreme Court would, in a majority, consider to be law. You can't always do that. Now, we are told by the Supreme Court that we can consider recombinant majorities out of concurring opinions that came to the same result. We've never been told that we could take a dissent and consider it to be the law. However, if you find that a fragment of the plurality, the plurality of the majority and the dissent, or enough of the majority to add up with the dissent and make a majority has a common element of reasoning, I cannot for the life of me see why we would not logically take the dissent together with the fragmented opinion that agreed with it on enough to make a majority and follow it as the law and say we're doing that. Uh, it would at the very least put the ball in the Supreme Court's court if they take it uncertain to say why we were wrong. I would note in passing that there is a similar question that has arisen a couple of times, and that is what does a judge or justice do when you're not, there is not a majority on the court for a decision? Justice Souter, in the Hamdi decision, writing for himself and Justice Ginsburg, confronted the circumstance in which he didn't agree with any of the other sets of opinions in the case, and he wrote for himself and Ginsburg that he was going to join in the result with the one that came closest to the result that he thought was the correct result. I followed his practice. If I did something, he turned out later not to like in the result, but I followed his practice in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts EPA case not long ago. This is an environmental setting we're in here, I feel. Wherein I would have concluded there was no standing. Something upon which the Supreme Court by five to four would have disagreed with me. I would have concluded there was no standing. Judge Randolph would have concluded there was standing, but no claim stated again something on which the Supreme Court by five to four at least sent back for further proceedings. Judge Tatel said there was standing and there was a claim state. I wrote separately, citing Justice Souter, and said, I will accept the jurisdictional decision of my colleagues as law of the case, although I think it's wrong. I will then join Judge Randolph because I think he comes close to the result I would get if we do have the case. Well, as I said, I'm not going to give you 
too much exposure of my hand on how I will play on any of the cards that may be dealt in the future. So that would be my opening statement. Terrific. Thank you, Judge Sentel. You've, uh, you've reserved two minutes of your time. <laughs> uh, next, we'll hear from Professor Simon. Uh, Professor Simon? Thank you, Dean. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, I think this is a terrific topic, topic to talk about because it provides an entry into some of the deepest tensions uh, within the standard constitutional theory. But to see why that's so, it's going to take a little work. Um, so, we can start with the fact that no court can determine for itself the extent to which uh, its plurality opinion or any other opinion is going to be treated by, as law by other people. Um, whether it's treated as law is a social fact. It's not a formal legal fact. Uh, let me give some uh, well-known examples that illustrate that point. Um, first, today I think it's pretty clear that the law uh, coming out of the famous Steele seizure case is Justice Jackson's concurring opinion rather than Justice Black's majority opinion, even though only one justice signed the Jackson opinion and six went along with Black. Um, I think it's also plain that the law is stated by Justice Holmes and his dissents in the early free speech cases, even though uh, he was outvoted in all of those cases. Um, often he was by himself, sometimes only with Justice Brandeis. Um, or to take an example, maybe a more controversial example, but one closer to home, think about uh, Judge Santel's own court. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, the D.C. Circuit was probably the most liberal court in the country. Today it's among the most conservative. If I want to set out to lose a case in the D.C. Circuit, I think the thing I would do would, would be to rely heavily on a majority opinion written by Judge Bathelon or Judge Wright from the liberal era, assuming I could find one that hasn't been overruled already. Um, if I wanted to win, I'd have a much better chance relying on a dissenting opinion by, say, Judge Wilkie or Judge Robb, two of the conservative judges um, from that period. Now, one might, might respond to all this, uh, by saying that in a hierarchical system like ours, higher courts can indeed establish rules for obedience to their precedent by reversing lower courts when they fail to follow the rules. And one such rule, for example, is the rule that Judge Santel referred to in the Marx case. I think, though, a moment's reflection makes clear the fallacy of that argument. The problem is that whatever a higher court says about the rules it, in fact, is going to reverse only in circumstances where it disagrees with the lower court on the merits, whether or not the lower court obeyed the prior precedent. Um, in other words, disobedience to prior precedent is punished only when the court presently thinks the prior precedent should be followed. And again, let me give you some examples that illustrate that point. Um, in the 1940s, in a case called Minersville School District versus Gobitis, the Supreme Court held in an 8-to-1 decision that school children belonging to the Jehovah's Witness faith could be disciplined for refusing to salute the flag. Two years later, in direct defiance of that decision, a three-judge United States District judge, uh, Court upheld the right of similar children to refuse the flag salute. Now, one might have thought that the Supreme Court would probably quash this open rebellion but in the meantime, there have been two new appointments to the court, and three other justices have changed their minds. So instead of the district court 
Instead, what happened was the district court got rewarded for its defiance with a winning affirmance of its decision uh, in West uh, Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett. Much more recently, we had a very similar sequence of events with regard to the death penalty. Uh, in Stanford versus Kentucky, the court held that it was constitutional to execute 16- and 17-year-olds. Subsequently, the Missouri Supreme Court decided that conditions had changed and held that the Constitution prohibited such executions. Instead of disciplining the state court with this outrageous defiance of its authority, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed that judgment in Wilbur versus Simmons. So, if one takes a hard-nosed, practical view of the question, how should lower courts respond to plurality opinions, the answer is those courts should do their best to count votes on the current court and do whatever is necessary to avoid reversal. That means, might mean following the plurality, it might mean following the dissent, it might mean doing something different from what any of the justices said. Now, one response to this is perhaps that we shouldn't take such a hard-nosed view. Perhaps we should ask, what is the right thing for judges to do? And to treat the right thing as independent of whether the judge will be rewarded or punished for doing the right thing. So on that view, perhaps judges actually have a moral obligation to reach decisions that will result in their being reversed. And although um, he didn't quite say that uh, here in, in, in other conversations, I think that is Judge Sentel's position. He can correct me if I'm misrepresenting him. Uh, in any event, that's a position that I have considerable sympathy for, but I, frankly, I'm not sure that Judge Santel and other people who advocated fully appreciate just how radical a view that is. If one has a moral obligation to reach right results that will nevertheless result in a reversal, that obligation is hardly exhausted by following the rule laid out in Marx. After all, lower federal judges, like other constitutional officers, when they assume office, swear allegiance to the Constitution of the United States, not to the Supreme Court of the United States. If one really has a moral obligation to reach results that will lead to a higher court reversing you, then it seems to me that one has a moral obligation to follow the Constitution and not Supreme Court precedent when those two things diverge. So, if I were a lower court judge taking that position, I would refuse to enforce the federal partial birth abortion statute because my obligation is to do what the Constitution requires, not what Justice Ken Kennedy wrongly says the Constitution requires. And that may explain why I'm not a lower federal judge, although I think that, uh, if ever anything was overdetermined, that certainly is. Um, now, that seems like a very radical position, but there are some very conservative people um, who have advocated it. Uh, to name two, that is essentially the position that Edward Meese took, at least briefly, while he was Attorney General of the United States. It's also the position that Judge Ray Moore, the Chief Judge of Alabama, took with regard to the posting of the Ten Commandments in his courtroom, or at least he took it before he ended up getting disciplined for having taken it. By the way, it's also the position that Abraham Lincoln took um, with regard to the Dred Scott decision in his um, um, famous, in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, mainstream legal theorists think this position is extreme and indefensible because they claim it undermines the settlement function that they suppose constitutional
law serves. So I'm going to close with two very brief responses to that claim. First, the argument presupposes that constitutional law is supposed to settle. Um, it might just be that mainstream theorists actually have wrong what the Constitution is supposed to do. But properly understood, the Constitution is deeply subversive of, of established authority because it's always available to rely on when established authority, be it in the Supreme Court or the President or Congress, departs from the commitments of our founders. The second point is less dramatic, but maybe more important for our purposes. If one rejects this view, then it seems to me one is left with the position that lower court judges should do what's necessary not to be reversed. I think that is the only alternative to that view. And if that's true, then for the reasons I've outlined, the Supreme Court can never establish the legal bindingness of its own decisions, and cases like Marx are simply beside the point. Great. Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, we'll hear next from Mr. Gene Sheriff. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd like to spend a few minutes discussing some of the practical implications of Marx for uh, practitioners and government agencies and even the regulated public. Um, and what I'm going to try to show is that even assuming uh, the Marx analysis can be coherently applied in a particular case, and Judge Sintel has outlined some of the reasons why it might not be possible with coherent application, but even where it can be coherently applied, it still creates uh, enormous dilemmas for people in the real world. Uh, on the one hand, the court says in Marx and in its progeny that, that where there is no majority opinion, lower courts are supposed to treat the narrowest concurrence as, as binding. Uh, yet the court has never, to my knowledge, has never actually reversed a lower court for failure to follow Marx. Uh, and it's repeatedly said that, that the court itself uh, does not give stare decisis effect to any opinion that commands fewer than five votes. Uh, and it said that repeatedly, and individual justices have, have said that repeatedly. And, and, of course, that creates a very real possibility, as Professor Seidman indicated, that a lower court will correctly apply the Marx analysis, follow it faithfully, and still get reversed when the new case goes to the, goes to the Supreme Court, even if there have been no changes in personnel on the court. Um, and so it reminds me a little bit of a, of a complaint that I often heard from my children when, when they were younger and their 9 o'clock bedtime came around and they would say, but Dad, this isn't fair. You're not going to bed at 9 o'clock. How come you're making me go to bed at 9? Um, well, the, uh, the legal dilemma in the law or the, the dilemma in the Supreme Court's cases, I think, leads to a potentially important practical dilemma, first of all, uh, for people who operate businesses in the real world or who um, uh, who have to make decisions as government officials and that sort of thing. And uh, an example of this, I think, is provided by the recent Rapanos uh, decision from the Supreme Court. As, uh, as, as most people on the call are probably aware, a four-justice plurality in an opinion written by Justice Scalia adopted the position that the Clean Water Act does not extend to wetlands unless they are physically connected by surface waters to a truly navigable body of water. Um, and as a result, that block of four justices voted to overturn the Sixth Circuit's decision that was under review in that case and the Army Corps of Engineers' decision that was also under review, uh, which had held that a mere hydrologic 
connection uh, to a navigable water was enough. That is, if the water was somehow flowing through underground aquifers and that sort of thing, that that, that was enough of a connection to a navigable water uh, to give the Army Corps of Engineers jurisdiction over it. Well, Justice Kennedy's concurrence, which provided the crucial fifth vote to reverse the Sixth Circuit, took a broader view than the plurality. Um, he rejected the plurality, the, the plurality's, I'm sorry, he rejected the plurality's view that the wetland had to be physically connected by surface waters, and instead said that all that's necessary is what he called a substantial nexus between the wetland and the surface waters, or the navigable water. But he didn't think the Corps had, had established Nexus by demonstrating that the wetlands that the wetlands significantly affect the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of a genuinely navigable body of water. And four other justices, of course, basically adopted the position of the Corps and the Sixth Circuit uh, that that any hydrologic connection between the wetland and the navigable water was enough. Now, under a Marx analysis, the Scalia plurality for four justices should be regarded as the controlling decision or the controlling opinions because its theory of the reach of the Clean Water Act is simply a narrower subset of Justice Kennedy's interpretation of the statute. Uh, that is to say that any, any wetland with a surface connection to a truly navigable body of water will almost certainly satisfy Justice Kennedy's test of, about being able to establish a chemical, physical, and biological uh, effect from the wetland on the navigable body of water. Uh, but there will undoubtedly be lots of wetlands that would satisfy Justice Kennedy's test that would not have a surface connection to the navigable body of water. Um, and so the implication of this, of course, is that we can all expect that the Corps will now adhere to Justice Scalia's view and stop trying to regulate any wetland that has no surface connection to a navigable body. Um, people are looking at me incredulously here in the room. Uh, and if I'm a private landowner, I can now fill in all the wetlands I want as long as they don't have any surface connection to a navigable body of water with no fear of reprisals of any kind. Right? I mean, that's what Marx would tell if Marx is really the law of the land, that's what Marx would tell me as a landowner I'm entitled to do. Uh, but I don't think any of us would bet money uh, on that proposition because we all know that if a landowner actually did that, the enforcement authorities would be right on his uh, right on his case. Uh, they would challenge that action. And then when the case ultimately went back to the Supreme Court, you would have a 5-4 decision upholding the enforcement action with, of course, a different coalition of justices. Justice Kennedy would now be joined by the four who were in dissent and in, in reconnaissance. And so no no lawyer worth his salt would ever advise a landowner in that situation to go ahead and fill in those weapons. And when you got to the Supreme Court, uh, in, in that hypothetical case, you could argue Marx until you were blue in the face, um, and, it, and you could argue about how the landowner had relied on the Marx analysis and the lineup of the justices in Rapanos, and, uh, and I doubt that it would uh, that it would really affect the outcome. Um, so this dilemma that I've outlined also has implications for practitioners, uh, both before the Supreme Court and the and, and the other courts. Um, as we've discussed, the Marx analysis isn't isn't of much use when you're litigating a case in the Supreme Court. And one one of the reasons for that is that each justice typically has his or own his or her own view of the issue at hand, and will typically vote in accordance with that view, regardless of what a majority, much less a plurality of the court, uh, has said or even held in the past. Um, that's 
there, there, there are exceptions to that, obviously, especially in statutory interpretation cases. Um, and some justices will, therefore, give stare, stare decisis effect to a majority opinion, even when they disagree with it. Um, that happens sometimes. You sometimes see individual justices doing that. But, I, again, I've never seen even an individual justice giving any kind of stare decisis effect to a plurality opinion that would be viewed as the controlling opinion under a Marx analysis. Um, that's not to say that as a practitioner I would never rely on Marx in uh, presenting a case to the court. I, you know, I suppose if I were defending a lower court decision that, that had applied Marx, I would, I would at least try to show that the Marx analysis was correct, and I would emphasize the unfairness of adopting a different rule of law when the parties and the lower courts and everybody else had relied on on Marx and and and, and had tried to faithfully follow it, um, but I wouldn't expect to win on that basis, and and so I would be certain to argue that the lower court's decision was correct even without the Marx analysis if I were trying to defend it, uh, and I would craft that uh, that argument based on a careful analysis, not so much of majority opinions and con- and controlling pluralities in prior cases, but on a careful analysis of what each justice. Uh, believes based on what that justice has said in the past and perhaps on what opinions that justice has, uh, has joined in the past. Um, by contrast, if I were trying to get the lower court decision overturned, I would argue, um, if I could, that the Marx analysis was incorrect. Uh, but again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect to win on that basis either, as we saw in the, in the example of, uh, of Roper that Professor Seidman um, cited earlier. Uh, because again, I, I don't think that any of the individual justices would really care very much about whether the lower courts had applied had correctly applied Marx. Once the case gets to them, they're trying to decide what they think as an original matter, and uh, and that's how they're they're typically going to vote. Um, so if if the Marx analysis holds no sway with the justices themselves, uh, of what value is it um, in the lower courts? Even assuming that you can coherently apply it in a particular case. Um, and there is an advocate, I think you, you face a bit of a dilemma, um, because you have to make a judgment uh, whether the judges on your panel uh, care more about trying to faithfully apply what the Supreme Court has said, or whether they care more about getting reversed. And I think judges probably differ on that. Some judges, some judges don't mind getting all that, mind that much getting reversed if they feel like they've honestly applied uh, what they, what they view as the law. Uh, other judges, I think, really hate to get reversed and, and want and want to be assured that if they uh, adopt a particular party's uh, proposed course of action, that they're not likely to get reversed uh, if, if the case goes up to the Supreme Court. Um, and so that's something that you have to take into account as an advocate before the uh, before the lower courts, whether they be state or federal. Um, and uh, and and so again, I think you. Um, it, in most cases, you're probably going to want to want to make both arguments. If you think there's a uh, there's a good argument that Marx requires a certain result, you're certainly going to make that argument. But uh, but you would be unwise uh, to leave it at that. Uh, you would you would be better served to try to also explain to the judges on your on your panel, albeit subtly, uh, but you you would want to try to explain to them, you know, based on a, a on some analysis of the of the uh, 
individual views of the justices that uh, that they are not likely to get reversed if they uh, if they adopt your uh, your proposed solution to whatever problem they're dealing with. Um, so, in sum, um, from the standpoint of a, of an advocate, and even more importantly, from the standpoint of the regulated public and the regulators out there, I think Mark is Mark is a trap for the unwary, um, and uh, and we need to remember that. Um, when we're uh, when we're advising clients, uh, whether they're in the government or elsewhere. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Our next speaker will be Professor Donald Kosher. Thank you for having me. And uh, I w- I want to talk about two major issues, and um, one deals with the hierarchical system that we are dealing with here. Uh, it's important to remember that this, this philosophical debate. Um, is not just in the federal court system, and it's not just uh, Supreme Court versus um, circuit courts. It uh, affects all the hierarchical uh, uh, portions of the system, and uh, certainly the district courts in Judge Santel's um, uh, uh, circuit have to deal with some of the same issues when they're trying to figure out how to look at a panel opinion. Um, the other thing uh, with this judicial wrangling with precedence relating with pluralities um, is the fact that the pluralities serve as a signaling function to lower courts and that signal can be disrupted by pluralities. But uh, Marx and its problems and similar problems um, in deciding what is truly precedent affect more than just the court system. And parties need to know what to argue. Um, the lawyers need to know how to do that for them. Uh, but there are also other individuals involved, including regulators um, and uh, and the parties who've made reasonable expectations may be faced with an idea um, of compliance issues. How do I comply uh, with the statute now that I it will have to be interpreted in terms of uh, the Marx decision, um, and Rotanus is a clear example of that. Um, so the idea, especially troubling with compliance issues, is that some of them come with very stiff penalties uh, and at a uh, risk of reasonable investment back expectations, you may invest in something that is not going to allow you to stay in compliance. And uh, not knowing what the law is becomes a problem. A little bit more on that later. The essential elements to a legal system based on the rule of law are indeed clear and understandable rules. Predictability and certainty, like I said, procedural validity in the formation of rules, and uh, rules independent of individual whims of government officials, and instead with a basis in established law. Um, There's a strong foundation precedent from the founders, I believe, um, uh, and forward. As Alexander Hamilton explained, quote, it has been frequently remarked with great uh, propriety that the luminous code of laws is one of the inconveniences necessarily connected with the advantages of a free government. To avoid an arbitrary discretion of the courts, it is indispensable that they should be bound down by strict rules and precedents, which serve to define and point out their duty in every particular case that comes before them, and it will readily be conceived from a variety of controversies which uh, grow out of the following wickedness of mankind, that the records of those precedents must unavoidably swell to a very considerable bulk. 
and must man long and laborious study to acquire a competent knowledge of them. The constitutional foundation adopted uh, by this idea that, um, is that judicial institutions should be guided by precedent in order to foster a rule of law. In subsequent years, this did not go unnoticed. For example, as Alexis de Tocqueville uh, commended the American system for its adoption of the concept of precedent as critical to the maintenance of the rule of law, he said, quote, the English and the Americans have retained the law of precedent. That is to say, they continue to found their legal opinions and the decisions of their courts on the opinions and decisions of their predecessors. In the mind of an English or American lawyer, a taste and a reverence for what is old is almost always united with a love of regular and lawful proceedings. Uh, Tocqueville hit on the important continuity that manifests, manifests itself, itself in um, applying precedent. Uh, the recent Supreme Court, uh, I'll move to the recent Supreme Court decision in, in Rapanos um, and say a few words. You've already heard it described, so I won't go into that um, in great detail. But commentary on Rapanos, I would like to uh, uh, say that it has often been described by some failing to provide, quote, intelligible rules that the regulars and the regulated can live by, unquote, as, quote, open mic night at the judge's cafe, end quote, and as a court dodging the bullet, and as, quote, fractured decisions. And that really does create a problem for the regulated community and for the lower courts and our entire system. Um, in the district court opinion in, in Rapanos, um, the court explained, in the plurality opinion, the United States court has stated that intermittent and ephemeral streams, whose flow is coming uh, in both intervals, um, are not covered, and moved on to discuss the facts. Um, but really, it is a great example of why splintered decisions add a level of complexity, um, and there is an added level of complexity manifest uh, in when the Supreme Court has addressed a particular issue uh, and articulated a rule, but has done so in splintered decisions. Since the precedential value of non-majority opinions is often uncertain among even legal scholars, one might anticipate a high degree of confusion or inconsistency among everyone that is involved in the system of regulation. Legal rules shape our interactions with precedent creates the rule of law, yet it is at least handicapped when continuity or confidence or confusion infuse our understanding of the applicable rules. When one does not, not know what the applicable rules are, how can she be in compliance? When one must guess in the face of court opinions providing plurality guidance, what risks ensue? How, and perhaps most intriguing, when one is part of the lower courts capable of creating confusion, what judicial incentives lie therein, and how do precedent and contribute uh, to rule of law values weigh in? And that's, um, will lead me to my second point as I just um, uh, say a few more words on, on pluralities themselves. Pluralities themselves, particularly Supreme Court pluralities, where the rationale for a holding is not green by, upon by a majority, muddy the waters um, and leave both lawyers and lower courts and struggles to find. Um, but we do need to ask you some judges feel compelled to, uh, compelled to follow precedent. Um, are some too proud to do so and instead buck the presidential, presidential system 
um, as was described by my fellow panelists. The second major point that I would like to discuss, however, is uh, that point where I said what judicial incentives lie therein. And it's something that we haven't really discussed yet here on this call. I believe that, in fact, there is at least a risk, at least a risk, that some judges will purposely decide to dissent or concur precisely because they know that they may be able to win out the battle someday um, if we don't um, uh, follow, uh, or if we do follow Marx. Um, they may be more inclined to concur rather than to try to find a way to fit it in either the majority uh, decision, what would have been a majority decision, and um, uh, the dissent. It seems to me that there is at least a risk that you will have a significant increase in the number of concurring opinions as a result of uh, this. There is a judicial motivation. There's an incentive to concur instead of join um, Two consequences is that, that uh, is that you will get more concurrences, um, and like I said, concur instead of dissenting. One reason that I bring this up is that the law and economics literature, um, much of it that deals with the judiciary, has talked about judges as being self-interested individuals when performing their job. That is, they respond to the, uh, the risks. They respond to of uh, of uh, congressional override. Um, but I think internally uh, that they may respond to the market incentive system if you believe the judges truly do. If you believe some of the literature, uh, the judges truly do uh, think politically, both as an institution vis-a-vis um, -vis other institutions, but also as individuals within an institution. Thus, if you are uh, on Supreme Court, and the four want to go one way, four definitely want to go the other way, and you're stuck deciding if you want to be in between, if you know that your decision is going to be the one that is eventually adopted by the lower courts, um, it's a disproportionate influence of that one uh, judge uh, to apply the narrowest ground test. Um, and that just seems wrong, especially if people start concurring simply to take advantage of that disproportionate influence that they receive as a result of, um, of their concurrence rather than what was a much larger group. You do have to believe that judges act politically that way within their institutions, uh, and you have to believe that they're self-motivated, self-interested in all the kind of things that we don't want to believe in. We want to think that they're all neutral and, and um, are not interested in having greater influence for either their legacy or simply because um, they know they can. And a rational economic actor judge um, should concur if, if Marx is going to be the law. Um, so part of what I'd like uh, people to, to look into um, uh, is whether or not we can um, map out um, precisely that uh, in some form of um, empirical work uh, to show that it might have that. I think it would be a good study to see if 
uh, we can go back to thinking that judges are neutral and are not um, power players within their own courts. Um, but um, hopefully we'll see. Terrific. Thank you, Professor Koshin. Why don't we uh, briefly hear from the speakers again uh, to the extent you want to respond or react to something in another Yeah, I'm going to be long, I'm maybe longer-winded the second time than the first. Uh, there is a dichotomy between the two professors on the subject of precedent, I take it. And while I have said things that were certainly not misrepresented by Professor Sadman to the effect of I would rather make the right decision than the one that's going to be upheld by the high court, I nonetheless agree with Professor Cushion that precedent is binding and has reason for being so. The Hamiltonian position, I think, is correct, but it prevents us from being arbitrary and capricious. The times in which I am applying the idea that I'd rather get the right decision than the one to be upheld is where there is not a clear Supreme Court precedent. In those cases, and I will confess that many of those involve standing, uh, I may think, well, if this goes to the Supreme Court, they're going to disagree with me, but I have to do what I think is consistent with the case uh, or controversy clause of the uh, Article 3. So I go ahead and make the decision, although I think I may be overruled, but I do not do it in defiance of Supreme Court precedent. Yes, we are bound to uphold the Constitution. The very Constitution says we are inferior to the Supreme Court. Uh, I do go with the precedent. Even when I disagree with it, I can conceive, Mac, of a case in which it would be so much of an anathema to me that I might have to recuse from a case. But I do not intend to stand in defiance of the Supreme Court precedent, although John Parker certainly did so to great applause from Barnett. It uh, probably had nothing to do with the fact that he was later defeated for confirmation of the Supreme Court himself, but he certainly would not confirm later when he was nominated. We could probably go earlier. It was earlier. Maybe, maybe he was taken to the bench. You are correct. It was earlier. I stand corrected on that. Anybody wants to confirm. Uh, you're right, of course, that Jackson's opinion in the steel seizure case became decided learning. Many of us have wondered at times if the fact that Bill Rehnquist was his clerk on that case and later contributed it to being cited in the uh, Duns and Moore case, uh, Deans and Moore case, and it discussed at length and the tripartite analysis being adopted. So maybe the way to get your legacy in place is to have law clerks if you keep your legacy in place. As far as Babylon and Wright's legacy, it's not entirely just them. I grant you a lot of their decisions have been overruled, but our decisions don't have a very long shelf life. Uh, you'll very seldom find a citation to any old Court of Appeals opinion because if it's an important question, by the time many years have passed, the Supreme Court has opined, and even right or wrong, we're not cited anymore, the Supreme Court is. If it's not an important question, it doesn't come back up. So in any event, rarely, except on esoteric things that don't make it to the Supreme Court, do we get cited years down the road. Uh, obviously, uh, Dean is correct that the Kennedy paradox exists not just in the uh, Wetlands case, but in lots of cases, that the one justice who is going to make the difference, if you look at the reasoning, it's, it's what I referred to in the opening remarks, it may line up in reasoning with the dissent. We've never been told we can do that kind of recombinant majority, but if we don't have any other source of law, that may well be where we're going to look. And if what you're going to argue to us, a practitioner, it is, look, here's the reasoning of Justice Kennedy, here's the reasoning of the four dissenters, and when you add them up, that's five for this reasoning. 
And certainly that's what I, I never argued before the Supreme Court, but I argued before courts of appeal many, many times, and that's certainly what I would have recommended. I said Dean, I meant Dean. Thank you for correcting me, Dean. There weren't too many Eans here, or maybe not too many, but anyhow, uh, finally, on the question of law and economics, the only thing I ever wrote on law and economics for publication was for the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, wherein I had been part of a seminar in which I opined and still believe that uh, law and economics is a good mechanism for dealing with economic questions. But it gets beyond that. It suffers from the same arrogance as all the other legal crypt-type theories that tries to make one size of reasoning fit all decisions. Uh, and it is an arrogance that says, I, the theoretician, professor, or other legal theoretician, know more about what this judge is doing than the judge does, or that the judge is being dishonest and express reason. The reasons we give are pretty generally the reasons we're acting on. We're, we're pretty honest. Uh, and we do know what we're doing, and it is not generally involved with any sort of self-interest. Law and economics in general, I think, uh, either states the obvious or the incorrect. Uh, if all law and economics is, is a theory that says people do those things that have more benefit than detriment to them, you can get that out of all country music. Uh, and Willie, and, uh, Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard had a song some years ago about a, an alcoholic who wasn't quitting, and the song was The Reasons for Quitting, don't outnumber all the reasons why. You, you can get that out of law and country music. Law and economics either states that obvious or it states things as ridiculous as the economic analysis of why rape is criminal. Rape is criminal because it's brutal, inhumane, cruel, not because the cost of the transaction is greater than the market will bear it. So I, the law and economics analysis is what we're doing. I think, with all due respect, to all those law and econ people who are seated around me or near me or appearing on our listenership is invalid. Great. Gene Chair, do you want to interject something briefly? Well, and on, and, and on that point, I, and, and you know, we talked a little bit about Justice Kennedy. My own view of Justice Kennedy is that you know is that he is not consciously trying to find the middle position on these on these issues so that he can kind of control the court. I, I you know I don't think he does that. I don't think I don't think Justice O'Connor did that either. I think it you know it it happened that uh, you know that in that in their views on a range of issues they are in fact at at the middle of the court and. Uh, you know, and 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 that does give them disproportionate influence over over what happens. But I don't think it's a, I don't think it's really fair to to say or assume that you know that the reason they occupy that position is because they somehow decided they wanted to be yeah. the most influential member of the court. The evidence of that is Kennedy does the same thing even when he's not deciding. But if you look at Rasul, the national uh, uh, security case where it was. Five justices in the majority without him, he still wrote a very separately, differently reasoned opinion. There were five on the majority, there was him, and then there were three dissenters. So he does it even when it doesn't make the issue. Professor Snyder, do you want to jump in? Thank you. Um, you know, Judge uh, Santel and I disagree about a lot of things, but we do agree about one thing. I think long country music has not been adequately studied. <laughs> I'd like to propose right here that we actually found a journal of long country music. <laughs> and by the way, uh, long country music might have something to say about um, uh, Professor Koshin's point. I, 
Copy music is a lot about human nature, and human nature is that people like to be noticed and pay, be paid attention to. And it's a little hard for me to believe that that thought never crossed Justice O'Connor's mind on some deep level when she was always writing newspaper headlines in the middle. Um, now to go on to things that we disagree about, <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm really glad this issue about precedent and the rule of law has come up um, because I think it. It's one of these places where there, you can, there's really tension in conservative legal thought. And as somebody who's not a conservative, I really like to exploit the tension. So here's the problem. Um, Professor Cochin tightly ties respect for precedent with the rule of law. But you can make that, you can, you can make that link only where the decision itself is lawful. If the decision that you're dealing with is unlawful, then respect for that decision undermines the rule of law. Uh, let me give you a very obvious example of that um, uh, that I think could be broadened, but, but it's an extreme example because it, it's, it's useful to illustrate the point. In the 19th century, a judge on the New York Court of Appeals uh, was convicted of bribery, and it turned out a lot of the decisions that judge had rendered uh, he was paid to render. Um, subsequent to his conviction, there was an agreement, an informal agreement, reached by the other members, by the members of the court, and by the New York Bar, that they would no longer cite as precedent cases where that judge decided, uh, cast a deciding vote. And they did that precisely because they believed in the rule of law. Um, now, that's an obvious case where a judge was bribed. Bribery is inconsistent with the rule of law, but disobedience to the Constitution is inconsistent with the rule of law also, even if one disagrees honestly, um, and therefore um, somebody following precedent that's disobedient to the Constitution, I think, is also undermining the rule of law. It seems to me this is a position that ought to be especially clear to conservatives who think that it's illegitimate for judges to act other than um, um, pursuant to uh, the text and original understanding of the Constitution. Um, the uh, stare decisis in respect for precedent has force only when people are disobeying. Uh, there was prior disobedience to the text of the Constitution or its original understanding. Otherwise, you could just follow the Constitution. And so, Respect for stare decisis is an example where some conservatives actually say, you know, we're not going to follow the Constitution. Um, we're going to do something that's non-constitutional because, for example, we believe in respecting uh, vested expectations or, or, or uh, 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 investment-backed expectations or what Alexander Hamilton thought uh, instead of what the Constitution says. It's for just that reason that some very well-known conservative textualists argue we shouldn't obey precedent. The, the leading example is, is Professor Gary Lawson, who's somebody who folks on the Federalist Society really like. He says, it's wrong to follow precedent because I believe in the Constitution. Well, I don't agree with Professor Lawson about what the Constitution says, but I agree with him about following it. And uh, the very things that Professor Cochin um, thinks are problems with following it, I think are virtues. It is precisely because uh, the Constitution undermines settled authority 
and provides a place for people to stand to attack the entrenched status quo that we ought to follow the Constitution and not uh, what some judge wrongly says the Constitution means. But isn't there a big difference on that point between uh, between a, a federal judge who's not on the Supreme Court and you know somebody like former Attorney General Meeks, who's in a different branch of government? Um, you know, I, or at least it seems to me it would be fair to draw to draw that distinction. I mean, the, the the Attorney General is in no sense under the Constitution inferior to the Supreme Court. I mean, he's part of a, a co-equal branch yeah. of government, and and I think you can you can make a case, and many people have that you know that the President and and therefore the Attorney General, you know, have the right under the Constitution to disagree with the Supreme Court about what the Constitution means. Uh, just as just as Congress regularly. And passes legislation that they know full well <laughs> is, you know, is unconstitutional and is not followed. I think that, and it's just not followed. I think that that is a distinction that might be made. Notice though that uh, both of you, um, I think, have endorsed the position that judges sometimes should do things that they consciously do things that they know will cause them to be reversed by the Supreme Court. Um, at least think there's a very good chance. And, and if that's so, then you can't simply rely on the hierarchical relationship between the lower courts and the Supreme Court to support your position. I think you can where the Supreme Court has spoken and where the Supreme Court has not spoken. It may be that it is a thin hope that I have that the Supreme Court will someday get it right on some of the marginal standing questions, but so long as they have not spoken to a case no. very parallel to the one I have, then I can, in good conscience, follow my own understanding of the application of case or controversy, and indeed I came within just Kennedy's vote of having it on Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Professor uh, Coaches, and it would be completely consistent with what I'm saying, because you, you aren't obeying the hierarchical mm-hmm. uh, aspect. Um, well, I'm going to get to the law um, economics uh, thing second. Um, and uh, try to defend that craft. Yes, C R A S T. Oh, don't hear that. The the only if it's legal issue. I think that what we're missing there is all the checks that can be done for both constitutional decisions and statutory issues. So, and one is just don't follow it, um, or follow it, read it differently as um, the implementer. Um, and another is uh, to um, find ways to use Congress, to use um, votes, to use other checking mechanisms to try to um, uh, punish them for making wrong decisions. Um, so I think that, or non-legal decisions, Right or something that is immoral. There are ways uh, built in to our Constitution um, and our institutions to um, play that check. But they're also in the basement. But they're also in the basement. Yeah. Um, the um, reduce their salary. You can do that too. You have no salary. None of those things are dictated as as constitutional necessities. Um, so. There are a number of, especially the Constitution prohibits the reduction of their salary. Well, that one. Um, but that one 
doesn't say anything about speed out. Yeah, right. It also doesn't say they have to give us raises. They're taking advantage of it. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. There are a number of control mechanisms that are discussed in the law econ literature, including um, uh, by McNoll um, Gas and others, to point out all those different control mechanisms. And don't forget, it's just not Congress and, and the President who can have some control, but the, the, the people can force the President and Congress uh, through their own influence over them. Uh, as to Lon Econ, um, I believe that it does serve a value, um, and an especially high value, um, at least as a starting point for understanding um, political behavior uh, and institutional behavior especially. The institutional issue um, certainly shows that um, you can at least take it and then pick it apart later, but figure out what would happen if these institutions were acting in the way that I'm talking about, then try to figure out if they are, and if you can't, uh, then just figure out that there might be a risk, and it helps to be that starting point for deciding if any sort of changes need to be made in those institutional relationships, including putting things in the basement or um, not giving raises. Uh, now, I think that Judge Santel would probably say not getting a raise does not influence his, his um, decision-making at all. And I certainly don't mean to, especially as I'm sitting across the table from him, um, uh, say that judges are definitely like that. Um, but uh, that's why if you put it out there, then if you can actually get people to send it back and um, uh, with a retort and uh, say, here's all the evidence that, you know, the economic presumption is, is not actually a- accurate in the application um, of it to individual beings. So, um, with all due respect, I will continue to um, think that it has some value um, in the analysis of, of the law. So I'll leave it at that. Well, well, thank you again. Why don't we now turn to some of the questions we're receiving from our audience, and I'll remind you, uh, if you are in the audience, uh, you can click the question on your, uh, click the tab on your computer that says questions, and you can submit a question in writing. There are two somewhat related questions here, and this goes back to the Marx case, uh, and I think intended for the entire panel or anyone on the panel. Uh, in the thrust of these questions, what are the narrowest grounds? Uh, does that, is it truly subsets, or is it overlap uh, between opinions, and who determines the narrowest grounds? Anybody interested in responding to that? I would start by saying it... This is Judge Sentel. Yeah, this is Judge Sentel, I'm sorry. It generally is going to mean subset, but it could mean overlap, although I don't think you would need the Marx analysis to take it if it were just overlap as opposed to subset. Anyone else? That's right. Okay, well, let's, there's a, a kind of a law and economics question here, I suppose. I don't want this to hold, the whole discussion to becoming a law and economics, but the, the thrust of this question is, is there an inherent tension between the notions of judicial restraint and law and economics to, to the extent that law and economics would argue that people want to, in, in, you know, increase their sphere of influence and judicial restraint kind of argues against that? Well, I would argue against uh, using your uh, using Marx or anything else to 
increase your influence if it's not, um, if that's your motivating factor. So I don't see how there is a difference. Um, uh, and if it never happens, then um, uh, that uh, is, is fine. But if, it, if it's true um, that judges do do that, um, they shouldn't. But I, my my argument is not a normative one, but I'll I'll make it one now. Um, uh, if they act in the way that I just hypothesized, um, they are violating restraint as well. So I don't see the inconsistency. I'd like to say a word about that, um, yeah. Professor Simon. Thank you. The, the, the leading proponent of uh, the most famous proponent of country of law and economics is, is Judge Posner, uh, and he is not. Um, particularly known for judicial restraint. And I think the reason for that is pretty clear. If one believes in law and economics, then that means pushing one for the efficient outcome. And the efficient outcome might or might not um, be the outcome reached by the political branches. So if I, if I can re- respond yeah. to that, I, I'm talking from a choice perspective about institutional analysis and analysis of the judges which is far different than the normative perspective that judges should look for efficiency. Um, I don't believe that. Um, I agree with you on that. So. Okay. So, let, let, let me then just say something about um, your point about motivation. Um, unlike uh, Judge Sentel, I'm not going to mount a global attack on law and economics, but, but from within its own premises. Um, so let's assume people are um, trying to uh, maximize their welfare. Um, it seems to me the problem with your analysis is it presupposes what um, what produces welfare for them. So in, in, in a case that you posit, for example, um, a judge might be interested in one of two things. The judge might be interested in headlines in the New York Times mm-hmm. and um, a sense of power, or the judge actually three things, I suppose. The judge might be interested in that, or the judge might be interested in the satisfaction that comes from knowing that the right decision is reached, or the judge might come from this, uh, might want to maximize the sense that the judge is a law-abiding person who is who is sacrificing their self-interest for the sake of the law. Um, so, if the judge is trying to maximize the other two things, then it seems to me your analysis, um, even within law and economics, just doesn't hold. If, if it would make perfect sense for a judge like that um, not to insist on uh, the judge's own view. So what, what, what one needs, really, to make the analysis work um, is some sense of what judges are trying to maximize, and that's not a, a theoretical question, that's an empirical question. Right, and you mean, I mean, those are good control variables for uh, the theory. And I think the way an economist would actually ask that question would be would be to say, what is the individual's objective function? What are they What are they trying to maximize? Right. You know, we all know that judges are not trying to maximize their income, so you can exclude the normal um, objective function that uh, that economics generally assumes people are trying to trying to maximize. And so, and so you're exactly right. I mean, you have you have to ask, you know, what is what is each judge really trying to uh, trying to maximize, and it's likely to be different for different judges. I, I think that it, they're good control variables, um, but I also think that if the concurrence is going to have a, a greater influence and they want to maximize things, I think that being the greater influence um, will help them maximize the, the other variables that you talked about. 
that seems wrong to me, actually. If, if, if this uh, strategy for maximizing influence works only where the judge is willing to sacrifice their judgment of the best outcome on the merits in order to cast a deciding vote. So there's a tension between um, voting your conscience, if you will, and maximizing your influence. Um, and if somebody is gets most satisfaction out of maximizing their influence, uh, out of voting their conscience, then they're going to not pursue the strategy which you suggest. Which is precisely why, you know, I don't think that it's uh, that it captures every judge. Yeah. Or, or the, I think, I think it works a lot better institutionally. Um, that is, maximize institutional influence uh, between when you're looking at the issue as the judiciary together um, versus Congress. Um, and so I, I think that um, it, it's going to be harder to deal with your problem um, than it is, I think, with the, your problems on the institutional. There were two points very early in your dichotomy there. Uh, first, I agree with Professor Sadman that there is an inconsistency between the law and economics analysis by a judge and judicial restraint. Uh, I said at the outset, it's not really a global attack on law and economics, because I think there is a place for law and economics, and that is an antitrust law, where you're dealing with an extremely short, unspecific statute where Congress apparently intended the judicial process to work out how that worked over the years, and to do so on an economic basis. So I think you can take that very analysis and analyze antitrust law. Uh, however, when you start applying it to how you interpret non-economic statutes, you're trying to make rational sense out of something that may not have made rational economic sense, and Congress may not have wanted it to be economically rational. Scalia said, with reference to a state statute, once it's perfectly possible for a statute to be economic nonsense and still be constitutional, uh, I think Posner would have a hard time agreeing with Scalia's statement, at least in an opinion. And again, it's because uh, Posner uh, I, I I don't agree with his uh, thinking that it should be used in every area of law or in the interpretation if it wasn't intended to be there. Um, I'm really doing a behavioral analysis on yeah. uh, actors. Uh, it strikes me hearing this discussion that some of the law and economics questions and, and the predilections of uh, judges might be useful during the Senate con- confirmation process as questions for not least. It may be why Posner was never nominated for the Supreme Court. That could be. I'm sure it was. Uh, another question from our uh, from our listening audience that may be retreating from the theoretical and, and turning more to the practical. Uh, the, the the writer bemoans the level of influence of Justice Kennedy uh, in the Rapanos case, stating that he makes the decision for the whole country. Is there no way to rectify that decision without adopting one of the pluralities? What should be done there in, in Rapanos? And we just had some discussion with Rapanos. But, uh, Congress can amend the statute. Congress can amend Congress the statute. Congress can amend the statute. That's an easy, yep. That's an easy fix. You know, it, since we're talking about law and economics, I think it is um, something that hasn't come up here um, uh, that, that suggests there is not an easy fix to this problem. Uh, Kenneth Arrow won a Nobel Prize for uh, demonstrating that when you have um, uh, a uh, multi-member body and when you have people with their preferences arranged in a certain way, that it is simply impossible to get a stable result um, uh, between if, if, there were, if there were more than two choices. 
And that's part of uh, the problem here. You don't, um, if, if people's preferences are laid, are laid in a certain way, um, Allo demonstrated with great sophistication that it is just not possible um, to align, to come to an outcome that is going to uh, be stable. So if he's right about that, and I think almost everybody who's looked at it agrees that he is, um, it follows that this problem is not the result of the Marx rule, it's not the fault of the Supreme Court, it's not the fault of the Constitution, it is just built into uh, trying to... to um, reach a democratic outcome with a multi-member body. Now, add to that that uh, I believe that it was meant to be hard to make legislation, um, and so when it's hard to make legislation, uh, that it's hard to uh, change it. Um, We certainly uh, know that the environmental statutes, especially, um, they're mostly outdated, and um, we haven't been able to change it for precisely the problem that you talk about, but if, if it's if, if legislation is meant to be hard because we're meant to produce as little of it as possible, that's at least how I read the Constitution. You know, it's something that uh, Judge Bork pointed out that we say in the judiciary and in the bar and in law schools that state assessors applies with muted force in constitutional law because it is so hard to amend the Constitution. We got it wrong, we better fix it ourselves. As Bob pointed out, the same really applies to legislation as well. If we got it wrong interpreting it, we can always say, well, if Congress doesn't like it, they can change it, but that doesn't happen overnight. It is a hard thing to do. So we have to be alert to the consequences of troublesome precedent, even on statutory questions which makes you wonder why baseball is still accepted in the antitrust law. <laughs> <laughs> um, another question from the audience. I think we have uh, time for one more question and then maybe some final thoughts from, from the panelists. Uh, the, the question is whether split decisions hurt the image uh, and I guess presumed authority of the U.S. Supreme Court in the eyes of the public and or uh, in the eyes of the lower courts. And are lower courts then more free to... Um, uh, I don't think it's run rampant over uh, over precedent, but you know, ignore uh, the the the, the uh, opinions passed down by the Supreme Court. Anybody want to respond to that? Yes, Judge yeah. I think I'd say yes in response to that question. The answer seems to me to be obviously yes, and and that may be one of the this Mike Simon, That may be one of the reasons why uh, Judge Sentel mentioned that he. Uh, on occasion is quite selflessly um, joined opinions he didn't agree with in order to to avoid the, uh, producing a, a, uh, um, a split. From my own uh, admittedly eccentric perspective, um, if the Supreme Court has uh, less authority and people are less ready to follow what they say automatically, I do that as a good thing rather than a bad thing. I think um, it's Donald Cush. Yes, Donald Cush. Um, the idea of uh, the authority issue, um, I think it also uh, goes, it goes to something else um, in a similar way, and that is um, at least the stories that I've heard about the Chief Justice joining majorities so that he can assign the opinion. Um, so I just want to throw that there, which seems to be that he's um, motivated um, to act differently than he might otherwise. 
Actually, I wonder about the truth of those stories. I know I've heard the same thing, but I've never become convinced that it really happened. Chief Justice Roberts, um, upon assuming office, took as one of his primary goals the, the effort to try to get the court to speak more often with one voice. I have to say, um, this must be a long-term project because I don't think it's been so successful, uh, very successful so far. Seemed to me it worked for a little while, but well, only a very little while. Yeah. <laughs> and it may have been drifting apart since then. Well, to come back to, come back to the credibility question, uh, it, it does seem to me that, that the March rule itself uh, tends to undermine the credibility of the court, at least with, with other judges, because I think everybody knows that you know that that if a case ultimately gets to the, gets back to the Supreme Court, uh, the, the court is going to ignore what the lower judges attempted to do, honestly following the March rule. Um, and and so I think it's a fair question, and I'm not going to purport to give an answer to it today, but I think it's a fair question whether the March rule just ought to be thrown out entirely. And uh, you know, and and if there's a you know, if, if there's a Supreme Court decision that doesn't produce a majority for any one any one position, then obviously uh, the, the the decision or the result of the decision will control the result in that case. But uh, it, it seems to me it's a fair question whether the Supreme Court really ought to purport to bind uh, the lower courts uh, to to attempt to you know to discern what the what the true rule of that case is. Uh, and to do so in a way that everybody knows is not likely to be stable uh, over the long run. Sort of the opposite of Senator Specter's super-duper precedent. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm not sure how much traction he really got with the super-duper precedent. <laughs> I think he was rightly reminded that one might have said that about uh, the separate but equal decision right. before Brian came along. Uh, well, terrific. Any final thoughts from the panelists on our topic? If not, uh, I think that idea of the Law and Country Music yeah. Channel is real. Uh, we, will, we, will, <laughs> we will follow up on Law and Country Music. Uh, if not, we here in the room are uh, you know, imagining your thunderous applause in the listening room. Thank you, grateful, therefore. Thank you for joining us, and thank you uh, to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.